I can show up. But if you're not valuing me or I can't show up authentically, then you're right. I am just this picture that's there. So for me, it's about speaking out all the time. And yes, I may sound like sometimes they may say it's the angry black woman. Sometimes it may be this. I don't care. At this point is your voice just needs to be heard. And so when you're speaking and you're at that table, you just need to feel comfortable that they brought you here for a reason. And if you're sitting at that table, you're doing a disservice if you're not speaking up. Because whether they listen or not, you're speaking. And at some point, they will be listening. So it's a journey. That was an excerpt from an incredibly powerful panel discussing ways to show up and be heard, even when trapped in the confines of systemic bias that we still face today in 2020. And this is Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women, an audio series that offers timeless insights from our archives to help you advance at work and in life. In this session, Unstereotype, Tools to Unbias the Office, we'll explore systemic bias, how it's perpetuated, and how we can disrupt its mechanisms to unstereotype and unbias the workplace. This engaging conversation is moderated by Dr. Tiffany Jana diversity innovator, best-selling author, and founder and CEO of TMI Consulting. Let's get started so you can meet our panelists. All right, I'd like everyone to just take a deep breath real quick and join me here in this space. Be present. It's a gift to us all that we are here. I'm really incredibly grateful to be here. I love being at this conference. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate that. But today we're talking about unconscious bias, which is not the most fun of topics. And in the workplace, if you happen to be a person who has experienced it or has measured it or has seen it, then you know how pernicious and scary it can be. But what I want to do today is just kind of reframe it a little bit for you and help you see that, first of all, unconscious bias and the biases that we hold, it does not mean that you are a bad person, right? Bias is something that we have because we're human. It's part of the way that the brain is wired. So the very first thing I want you to make sure that you leave here with is you have bias as long as you are breathing. If you do not have unconscious bias, then you need to see a doctor or an undertaker, right? Something might be wrong. It is part of how we function. So if you're one of the people who's running around the world saying, oh my God, I don't have any bias. I was raised better than that. Please don't ever say that again. Okay, makes you look kind of crazy. So I would like you, uh, by show of hands, raise your hand if you identify as a good person. Please, the good people, please raise your hand. Really? Aspire to be a good person. I'm sorry, I'll widen the group a bit. All right, aspiring good people, fantastic. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, we've got some talking to do, okay? So most of us do aspire to be better people than we are maybe today, tomorrow. And what I would like for you to understand is that within the world of unconscious bias, in the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, how we treat each other at home, in our lives, in our workplace, if you have unconscious bias, if you're willing to go there with me and understand that it's just part of the human condition, it's how we're hardwired to take shortcuts because our brains are really lazy, then there is a really high probability that you are probably treating some people less than well and you don't even realize it. How many people have ever offended someone without meaning to do it, right? Yeah, okay, right. Well, hands that went up for quick for that, okay? Maybe I should have said, how many people are crappy people? No. <laughs> So it is important. The first thing for us to do is recognize that unconscious bias is a natural state of the human brain. To have bias is normal. It's natural. It doesn't make you a bad person. But you've got to not only acknowledge it, then you've got to do the work of actually finding the biases that you have. So tools like the Harvard Implicit Association Test can help you identify where some of your biases are. You've got to check what's on your hard drive because based on the well-meaning people who raised us, who trained us, who brought us up in some religious way, whatever it is, media, books, all around us, we're taking in biases all the time. And we may not be kind of mining that hard drive to see what messages are still useful. And I believe that those of us who identify as good people have a responsibility to each other to actually figure out what outdated beliefs we might have and do something about it. So the key in my mind to dealing with bias in the workplace is to stop talking about your racist manager and your sexist supervisor, but to actually do some introspection and examine the space that you occupy within the workplace and within your life. If each of us only took responsibility for the impact that we were having on the people around us, we would be looking at a very different state of the world, right? 
bias right now is affecting so many systems at so many levels. So my books were written from the personal to the global. Overcoming bias is an independent study on finding your own bias and figuring out what to do about it. Erasing institutional bias was my second book. If people are biased, so are the systems that we build. And there are ways to identify that and break it down. And then the third book was the second edition of the B Corp Handbook, which looks at how do we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion at a global economic scale? How do we create room for everyone to be part of the journeys that we are on? Okay. But we've got to take responsibility. If I had to sum up the work that I've done on five continents, I got one continent left, y'all. If anybody knows anybody in Antarctica that needs some diversity help, please let me know. I can't find a damn racist penguin to save my life. (laughs) So all the work that I have done worldwide, okay, on diversity, equity, and inclusion, if I could sum it down to one core tenet, what happens at home and in our lives We have incredible grace for our family and our friends, the relationships that we have stake in, the relationships with legs. We will tolerate our sister's clown antics and shenanigans because we love her, even though she gets on our nerves. Our best friend who goes on and on and on about her drama, we allow it because we want to stay friends with her. When we get to the workplace, we lose touch with each other's essential humanity. That's what I see as the centerpiece for all of the crap that we put each other through. Somehow, when I'm sitting next to Catherine in the accounting department, I don't care about her or her story. She's a cog in a machine. And this is whether I'm a manager, supervisor, CEO, or an individual contributor. Somehow we think that in the workplace, the rules of our interpersonal connectedness don't count. And that's trash. That is absolutely wrong. We are a symbiotic system of animals. At the end of the day, we're freaking animals. You know, Chatty Kathy, oh my God, I brought cupcakes for everybody. How are you? I remembered it's your cat's birthday. Here you go. <laughs> right? So I'm totally that girl. <laughs> That's why I play her well. She can be annoying, but you're kind of laughing and she's not bringing you down. That energy actually does lift you up no matter how extreme it is from your own. And the opposite is also true. That guy who comes to work is like, I can't stand none of y'all. I'm not going to say hello. I just come to get my check and I'm out right? No one wants to be on a team with that guy because that energy is also contagious. So if there are people in your workplace who are feeling like they have to cover their LGBT identity, who have to cover their blackness, who have to show up as professional and professionalism, y'all, is real problematic because that is a placeholder for show up like a white male, okay? And I have nothing against white males. I married one. My third and final husband was a white man. I didn't kill him. I just left him, okay? (laughs) And he doesn't represent all of you, I know. So it's all good. But having to cover and hide yourself and pretend to be someone you're not and try to fit in actually causes you harm. It increases your blood pressure. It increases your stress and decreases your productivity in the workplace by up to 80%. And when one person is feeling like that in the system, it is affecting everyone else within the system. So if nothing else, enlightened self-interest should be your motivation for treating each other with some grace and respect. Fair? All right, so I would like for you all, if you could repeat after me, I am a work in progress. I am a work in progress. One more time, I am a work in progress. I am a work in progress. All right, so don't feel bad when you mess it up, when you step in the diversity doo-doo to pile and you get it wrong. I do it all the time and I'm a whole professional in this area. Have some grace for yourself and have some grace for the people around you and maybe we can make some progress. Cool? All right, thank you. next order of business, I'd like to invite up my esteemed panel. Come on up, folks, whichever way you'd like to join me. So I'm going to ask each of our panelists to give a quick introduction of themselves and why their awesome selves were invited to be on the panel. And I'm going to start with you, Virgie, because you came on red. And I'm feeling it. <laughs> I am a fat activist and an author. I work primarily in teaching people about weight-based discrimination. And I'm Roxanne Cook. I'm the regional director for Consumer Bank and Wealth Management at J.P. Morgan Chase. And I say that because when I make that introduction, people give me the eye and look at me because they don't expect to see someone like me looking like me in that wealth space, in that finance space, in the executive level space. So I always introduce myself as such, and then I take it from there. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Wade Davis. I'm a feminist. That's all you got to know. Nice. All right. Sweet. All right. So Roxanne, I'm going to start with you. I would love for you to, so we kicked it off with, you know, the unconscious bias space. I love your introduction. Tell me a little bit about experience that you've had with 
bias in the workplace and how you have dealt with that. And so you kicked it off phenomenally well about how you show up in the professionalism title. And so for me, if you all look me up on social media or anything like that, you might say, okay, that picture doesn't look like that picture. doesn't look like that picture. Who is she? She has braids. She has weaves. She has this. She has that. And so for me, it's about that when I show up and I have my braids mm -hmm. and I might be perceived as, okay, that's not professional or that's too black or that's so-and-so or that doesn't fit someone in the wealth space that I'm going to give my money to, to manage. So I've had all of those experiences. And for me, at first I used to, I think, feel defensive when that happens. And people don't come out and say, they just give that look, right? Or they're talking to you and they're looking directly at your hair, right? <laughs> and they're not focused that, on you. Right? And, so and so they're looking directly at your hair and they're not looking in your eyes. So you can tell when it happens. So now what I just do is I'll say, I'm going to the islands next week. I have braids in here because I don't want my hair to get wet. So I have braids. So for me now, when I see that, I just explain, right? I don't take it personally. I just explain. Mm -hmm. Awesome. How about you? Any experience with bias? Yeah. I'll tell a story that I told on, on yesterday when I called a woman sweetie, right? Like, like that's actually me exhibiting bias, right? And I was a director in an organization and there was a woman who I gave a directive to and the conversation got combative and I was trying to de-escalate her oh. and I said, sweetie, calm down, right? Oh, you may now exit stage right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have some grace. I'm going to have some grace. <laughs> And the reason I tell that story with intention is because for me, the only way to overcome bias is to name it out loud, yes. right? And to be as vulnerable and as transparent as possible, right? So that moment gave me the opportunity for my boss to actually give me something to read, right? So to start to educate myself to do <clears throat> personal work, just yeah. to start to overcome bias, right? Like I'm definitely still sexist, but I'm honest about the fact that I'm on an actual journey, right? And it's part of my responsibility to, as you said earlier, to not pass the buck to everyone else, but to do the work myself and to model what it looks like to overcome bias. And I will tell you one of the, the metaphors that I use in my first book is when you're doing any of the work around diversity and especially around bias, because after you finish reading my book or take an unconscious bias class, you're not going to be free of it. It is an ongoing thing. And I like to use the hygiene versus appendectomy, right? <laughs> I can't cut out your bias or your racism, right? It's more like if you don't take a shower every day, you're going to smell bad, boo-boo. So every day you got to re-up on it. So you might do some work and find some of your biases and become a little more woke. And then somebody might have to look at you and be like, ooh, sweetie, you got a little, you got a little racism right there between your teeth. You might want to get that out. Okay. So yeah, the hygiene versus appendectomy. It's ongoing work. Virgie, you are in a highly specialized space. I would love for you to share a little bit about your journey and your book, because that is, I've done a bunch of these panels and no one has ever had that sweet spot, which I think is super dope. So yeah, I mean, I am an entrepreneur in many ways because of weight bias. But essentially, I was living the evidence that I did, the body of evidence that I didn't know existed until I started sort of researching. But I tried to go into the corporate space in San Francisco where I live. And I would find again and again and again that I would have these entry-level interviews with women who found me really interesting and well-qualified and a good attitude. And then the final interview was always with a man who would largely body check me, decide that he was not attracted to me, and then quickly attempt to end the interview as quickly as possible. And this happened enough times that I started to really have that sense of minority threat right? Which is like when you are expecting discrimination and then it happens and then you can only kind of imagine it happening, right? And it creates that stress response that you were talking about earlier. And so for me, I decided I was going to opt out entirely and just create my own industry. I was very lucky to be able to do that. But at the end of the day, right, the reality is that when a fat candidate shows up, we know from data that people have negative attitudes, like the belief that this person doesn't have leadership qualities, the belief that this person doesn't work as hard or isn't as intelligent. And this is particularly true for women. The impact for women is that fat women make nine to $19,000 less a year than their thin counterparts. And this is a real problem. So for me, it looked like going into the entrepreneurial space as a harm reduction method around yeah. discrimination. That's really interesting. I mean, so many entrepreneurs I know step into the space 
to create the life that they want to have. Like I did mine around my children. I was a young mother and then I was a single mother because three divorces, y'all. I'm so good at leaving people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I needed to, I had like every other week custody and I needed to create the space that I wanted for the lifestyle. And so I did that. Yes. But we are like, I graduated from high school, big girl, right? Mm-hmm. My ghost body will never leave me. And I always, that mentality is always with me. What a gift to all of us that you are in this space because it is a much less discussed bias. There's the ones that get all the press. Mm-hmm. It's much less discussed, but so, so impactful. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. And I'm going to ask you one more question. I know that it's easy for us to externalize the impacts and the behaviors of bias. We see it all around us. We see everyone else doing it. But in the workplace and in our lives, there are some specific ways that women undermine each other in this area. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. I mean, when I started working with women individually, I mean, I do a lot of things, but one of the things I do is I coach women who are recovering from either chronic dieting or from eating disorders. And it's an alarming percentage of women, right? 68 million Americans go on a diet every year and many of them don't identify what they're doing as a diet. So that number is much higher, I would argue. What I found shocking was when I asked them, where is the place where you get triggered the most? Where is the place you feel least safe? I was shocked to hear that it was the workplace. Most of them work primarily with other women. Many of them like these women, right? But it's this constant chatter around food, around, you know, what are you doing during lunch? Oh, you're so good for going on a walk. Oh, you're so good for the, oh my God, there's cake. Oh my God, I don't know. And like, can you cut me a, a smaller, no smaller, a smaller size, no smaller. Can you just please just like, like a mouse size piece of cake? <laughs> Actually, it was so, it was so pandemic that I made this video called, no, I will not cut you a smaller piece of cake. <laughs> and eight women shared like the actual things that have been said at their office around like the cake slicing ceremony. So I think what people don't realize is, I mean, truthfully, right, if you're socialized feminine, you are taught that this is an innocuous topic. And in fact, we're taught this is a topic that helps us develop intimacy with among each other. This is sexism, pure and simple, right? And I think the truth, the reality is, right? Like, we don't know around us who has struggled with that. We don't know who is actively struggling. And I think for me, I get really upset because these women are earning hard money and they're all over the weight spectrum. I have fat clients. I have very slender clients. They're paying a tax for this pervasive work environment reality. They have to pay me and they probably have to pay a therapist as well. And this is a tax, right? And at the end of the day, we ultimately all benefit from not having that food surveillance as part of our daily lives in our workplace, because frankly, it's a privacy issue. Your body size, what you eat, we need to start seeing these things as private matters. My youngest child went to a Montessori school and one of their rules was we don't comment on other people's food. And I was like, that's such a good idea. Like we don't talk about other people's food. I'm like, that's brilliant. So I love what you said when you're talking, you said something about the struggles that people are going through that we don't know in this space of checking yourself and doing your own work and trying to extend grace even where you really don't want to because you can't stand that woman, right? No one feels that way. Understand that every single one of us at every moment is going through our own personal battle. If you can't find empathy anywhere, understand that some of us are winning our battles. Some of us are losing them. Some of us are in the throes and we don't know how it's going to go. But recognizing that we have that is important. So I'm going to out myself right now, Wade. Well, one, I'm LGBT, not out in that way, but I was having a little bit of a struggle. So I'm going to ask you, you share with me LGBT identity, right? right? And you also, NFL and LGBT is not a thing that we think about. Gay male, black male, NFL. It it was, found myself going through a mental process of being almost uncomfortable asking of a question around that experience. And I'm just saying, like I do this for a living, but one, I don't make my business outing other people in spaces. And you said you were feminist. You didn't say, hey, I'm a gay NFL player, right? But it's interesting because it is, there is the stereotype of what the world has decided is man. And there's the space that you've occupied where you've kind of opened the conversation wide up. Tell us about that experience. Wow. I don't know where to go from there. I know, I'm like, I'm like, I had trouble saying it. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what that's like. So part of the reason I don't open when I'm a former NFL player yeah. is because there's a certain bias and assumption that exists about me, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you complicate that by telling the world that you're gay, there's also another bias. But there's also a great privilege that I have, right? 
that I get to disclose because my gender performance, right, matches the status quo, right? Mm -hmm. I can enter and exit spaces and people don't make assumptions about my identity, which is a great privilege. So are you mad at me for outing you? No, 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 no. So the one kind of caveat is I don't use the language of coming out. I use the language of inviting it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a very kind of different shift. And Darnell Moore is the person who created that term. But what it, it connotes is that I control, right? Who gets to come into my space, right? The idea of coming out speaks to this idea that gay people are hiding, mm -hmm. right? That gay folks um, are monsters in closets, right? We're human beings. And when you take back the power of saying, I'm inviting the world in instead of saying I'm coming out because language matters, words have power, right? So we have positioned LGBTQ plus folks as almost monsters by saying that they're coming out of something. And what you really mean is out of a closet. Gay people weren't in closet, but we didn't invite you in because the world was not safe for us to disclose. Yeah. But no, I'm grateful that you created this space. I always try to shift the conversation away from the fact that I'm an NFL player, away from the fact that I'm queer, but to the fact that I'm a feminist because I get to interrogate the idea that the root of homophobia is sexism, Oof. right? And that my my role as a very hyper-privileged male is to try to do the work, as Bell Hooks said, to start with those who are most marginalized. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're able to talk about fat shaming amongst women is to me starting at the most at a more marginalized group in a conversation that we don't often get to have. So I'm going to step back and let you just educate us more about how important that this work <laughs> is that you're doing. Wow. All right. Yes, yes, yes. That's appropriate. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just wondering. <laughs> she never stopped learning, y'all. Never stopped learning. So Roxanne, I'm stuck on this idea that you have decided to explain yourself and explain your choice to people because there is a very real phenomenon like my head is spinning right now because the lexicon of my trade is now part of the common vernacular. Everybody talk about diversity. Ten years ago when I said I did diversity, people were like, what? The inclusion? What's that? Right. But everyone knows now. And one of the challenges that I'm sure that we all share is that we are put in a place by virtue of our marginalized identities mm -hmm. to be the educators. People who fit majority demographics, all of the various ones, expect often for us to educate them. Mm -hmm. Now, I get paid to educate people. Mm -hmm. Each of us has a space that we occupy. Mm -hmm. Do you ever get tired? You are a black, powerful <laughs> woman in the workplace, mm -hmm. and you told us that you opted into that space. What is that like? I wouldn't be authentic today if I did not say I don't get tired. Okay. I, I do get tired, Okay, but I accepted that, right? So when I say explain, I explain that I'm not looking for acceptance. I'm not looking for you to accept and say, okay, now you're okay to come in. Yeah. So for me, I had to kind of step back because there was a point where when that was happening so much, but I just put up barriers, right? Yeah. And I was not my authentic self, right? I went to work guarded. In fact, I was described as stoic, right? <laughs> because I just went, feeling like I have to battle every day. I have to battle to sit at that seat. I have to battle to get my voice heard. Yeah. And so when I wasn't invited in, I went in. So for me, I had to kind of really step back and there was this model on unconscious bias that I saw and it was about, it said flex. Yeah. It just said flex. And I looked into that and say, okay, how do you flex? Because you do have to be flexible when you're dealing with people. And so the first piece of that was focus within. Mm -hmm. Do some introspection. So I did. How do I show up? Mm. Am I showing up as stoic and not inviting people in? So that was the first piece. And there's some double clicks under that flex. Mm -hmm. The second piece was listen to others, mm -hmm. right? That's the L. And the E was encourage dialogue. So that's why I say I try to explain myself. I try to sit down. But I do that. And then the X, right, is really exercise options. Right. So when I sit down with people, what I do is I make it a safe space, right? Because they're already walking into like, can I say this to her? Am I, can I touch her hair? Can I ask her questions? So it's the just, no, you and the answer is no, you hair. can't touch my hair, right? right? I know it looks like cotton candy <laughs> today, don't do it. So what I just do is make it a safe space for everyone, for myself too, and invite people for coffee. Yeah. Right? I could just call it coffee and conversations. Right. So I have coffee and conversations all day. So if I'm bouncing off walls, it's because I have coffee <laughs> and conversations <laughs> all day long. Right? The, the theme that I'm hearing, <laughs> it made me concerned because I know that there are so many people who represent one undervalued identity or another. 
who just feel like they're always on display. They're always on show. They're always having to answer the questions. And so I was concerned for your well-being, but it sounds like you are in control of the environments that in those situations. And like then it just shifts the conversation, yeah. right? Because okay. you're sitting down and, and then you're building and then you find out what I found through those coffee and conversations that there's so much commonality. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So the biases shift that shifts because now we can connect on various levels. Right. So that's why I chose to go that route. And then they can in turn become advocate of, on yeah. your behalf or others behalf. Yeah. And what I love about this audience today is they're here to kind of understand so that they can take it out there. Exactly. And that's how we're going to change the scope of this conversation. Right. So note to everyone, if you, I mean, we've got mostly women. Hello, gentlemen in the audience. <laughs> I see you. You are represented. But particularly for the women in the audience, whether you are a woman, a person of color, a sexual minority, I identify as non-binary. My pronouns are they and them. I just changed that in 2019. Thank you, millennials and all y'all who came up with that. (laughs) Explains so much about my dead marriages. (laughs) Whole entire man just showed up in the middle of the marriage and they were like, what? So if you occupy an undervalued identity, understand that it is not your job to educate anyone. If you choose to lean into that space, that is an act of service that you are choosing, but never feel like you have to, like you can literally about face and say, I'm sorry, but I'm not here for this right now. Check in with a professional. You don't need to be the designated diversity person because you're brown and you have a JJ. That is not a job qualification. Okay. And then for those of you who are looking to learn, There are many, many books and documentaries and videos and podcasts and things on this subject. Please do not burden the underrepresented people around you with your learning process. Okay. (laughs) This is news you can use. I love you. I say it with love. (laughs) And I know y'all mean it real nicely. But Lord, we get tired. So much wine at the end of the day. (laughs) Hi, I'm not venting. How are you, (laughs) Bertie? All right. So what's next? I'm going to throw the next question at you all. The next thing that you would like to share. What am I missing that these people need to know before we go into Q&A? Or was that my Q&A signal? Okay, good. (laughs) So I love that you let into not educating and don't feel like you have to educate And that's why I really want to hit home that this is what these conferences are all about. Mm -hmm. It's about going out there and doing that. There's other things in your companies that you can do. Mm -hmm. There are BRG groups where you can go and learn and connect and educate, right? This afternoon, there are sessions, women of color sessions. Are you going into that session to kind of understand? And it really is about that understanding, right? I was thinking about, I made this long list of kind of ways to make the workspace more fat accessible. And it's interesting, right? There's a lot of intersections between disability accessibility and fat accessibility. I want to actually kind of start with this statistic, which people often don't realize is that a woman specifically, I know the statistic about women, so I apologize that it's not super expansive, but a woman who is classified as quote obese, the chances of her becoming a normal weight person are 0.8%. And there's a lot of focus on this idea that weight is something that we can bootstrap our way into or out of. At the end of the day, for most people, again, the tiny minority exception, for most people, they'll stay within around the weight that they, you know, sort of are naturally born into. And typically what happens when people are dieting is that they lose and gain the same weight over and over again. And this has incredible impacts on the heart, the immune system. In addition to that, dieting is very stressful and it does a lot of things to the spirit and the mind, right? That's a really important place to start from, to understand this is a human rights issue, not as a health issue, number one. And then when you accept that, when you actually download that and recognize that why somebody is a size they are is none of your business, you treat them where they're at, right? You don't make sort of assumptions about why they are whatever and then sort of make judgments from that point forward. We need to let go of that idea. And actually, again, benefits everybody when we do that. Don't do that extra labor. You don't need to. So in terms of how fat phobia looks, there's sort of these different elements. One of the biggest ones is institutional. And that is, right, like chairs. Do you have chairs that don't have armrests? Do you have chairs that are weight tested above 190 pounds. In the medical space, a lot of medication isn't tested. The efficacy of medication isn't tested above 170 pounds. 68% of US women are a size 14 or above, meaning that a sizable percentage of them have no idea of the efficacy of their birth control, of their antidepressants. This is an institutional form of discrimination, right? This is the majority of America (laughs) at the end of the day, right? And then one of the things I was really amazed by was I was approached by an employee interest group 
from Square and they have a fat interest group there. It was like a tech company that's a part of our lives, right? And they have this group where they're trying to have these conversations about the workplace. So it's possible to do this. And for that group as a collective to be able to advocate and come to the table with a little bit like a sense they don't have to do it by themselves because it's very hard when you already have internalized inferiority and the concern about making waves to be the one alone who's leading that conversation. A lot of people fear, again, even in the smaller side of the weight spectrum, a lot of my clients are afraid of being ostracized for saying anything. They're really terrified that they're going to be sort of treated as an outsider and treated as a troublemaker. And it's scary. I think like institutionally, a couple of other things, right? Like remember that clothing access is something, right? Like I think about how Mm. the fact that like plus size women don't get to have professional wear in the same range of their smaller counterparts. How does that impact confidence? How does that impact how they're being perceived, right? I mean, like it is hard to ask for a raise when you are wearing a cheap polyester suit, girl. And I mean, a lot of fat women experience, I literally just talked to a friend who came out of law school and she's like, I literally, I have loans. I'm trying to look professional and there's nothing in my size, the size 16 that I can go into an interview with and say, I deserve this job at a big firm. And speaking of that, last thing I'm going to share is I learned a lot about one thing that kind of surprised me was my former partner is a fat person and he's a lawyer and he works at a very large firm. And one day he came home and we were talking and he started to cry. And he said, one of the team building activities that they suggested for our group was a weight restricted activity. It was like indoor skydiving. And I felt so ashamed. I felt like I couldn't say anything. And I felt like I was holding, if I said anything, I'd be holding everybody back from a team building activity. And like, this is a really simple thing. You can check the logistics of a thing. You can call a company and get that checked out really quickly. So I think giving texture to the institutional component is really important. So name your book for the five people who didn't read the bios. (laughs) Name your book. I wrote, You Have the Right to Remain Fat. And my next book is The Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. It's a teen book, yeah. And so did anyone learn anything new from Virgie? Please raise your hand if you are something new. Right. So this is why it's so important that we have representation at every level of our organizations, particularly the decision-making levels, whether it is our teams, our boards, across the organization, we wouldn't know these things if someone who didn't represent the fat demographic wasn't able to share that kind of perspective. And imagine like what you said about your former partner. He was in a situation where he could have spoken up for himself and chose not to. And what we are cultivating aggressively in our workplaces are places that are not inclusive, where our actual thoughts and opinions are not welcome. You can have all the diversity you want, but if no one's allowed to speak up from their perspective and bear on the solutions that are created, then it doesn't matter. All you have is a real pretty like annual report picture for your social media. You've got to let people show up, say what they need to say in order to get the best out of folks and in order to create an environment that's safe and welcoming. But can I tell that some companies will have that diversity and inclusion piece of it and you'll have your annual testing around you have the code of ethics. So you have the defensive piece, mm-hmm. right? To address if something happens. Right. But it really is about the offensive piece. Right. You can create this, but how are you creating that space? Mm-hmm. And it's not a one and done. This yeah, is like a journey. So I love when we call it journey to inclusion. Mm-hmm. And when we create this space, because I can show up, mm-hmm. but if you're not valuing me or I can't show up authentically, mm-hmm. then you're right. I am just this picture that's there. So for me, it's about speaking out all the time. And yes, I may sound like sometimes they may say it's the angry black woman. Sometimes it may be this. I don't care. At this point is your voice just needs to be heard. And so when you're speaking and you're at that table, Mm -hmm. you just need to feel comfortable that they brought you here for a reason. And if you're sitting at that table, you're doing a disservice if you're not speaking up because whether they listen or not, you're speaking. And at some point there will be listening. So it's a journey. It really isn't this one and done, this annual, this code of conduct or code of ethics. It's the conversation. I always encourage people to find allies or folks who represent their perspectives because the unfortunate truth is that organizations are still willing to get rid of you. If they're not optimized for that kind of inclusion, all of us know the fear of being 
the angry black person or the troublemaker. And you can be a troublemaker of any demographic. You could be a whole white woman. You'd be a whole white man and be a troublemaker. There's certain things we are de-incentivized against rocking the boat. So building a coalition of folks at different levels of the organization, maybe, who believe what you believe as well when you're trying to make change is really important because they will exit one person. And I will tell you that I've been, and I've shared that, and I've been asked, why do you need someone to be your advocate? Or why are you selecting so-and-so to be your advocate? We all need advocates. We all (laughs) need advocates, right? So I've had that question. But we all need advocates, whether it's someone who's senior in the organization. So it doesn't have to be by color. It could be at that level of seniority that they've already built those relationships. They're just helping you to come along with that. And we should all be advocates. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of where you are in the organization, there's probably somebody who can look up to you. There's a place where you can lead. And if you ever have the privilege and the opportunity to speak up for someone and to represent someone who's not able to speak for any reason, use that privilege. The more we band together, the harder it is to break us apart. So before we move to Q&A, can you share with us a little bit about strategies that you've seen work or strategies that you advise for people as they're trying to navigate these challenges? Yeah. So one of the big things, and I'm going to speak personally. So a lot of, of my work is focused on men and gender. And one of the things that I try to get men to do is understand the experiences of the other, right? So what I did in a group is we had to read Roxane Gay's book, Hunger. And the first time that I read it, a Roxane Gay, she talks about walking on an airplane. And she talks about because of her body size, people would look at her and look away with the hopes that she would not sit by them. The mm-hmm. first thing that I did was I owned that that was me. So one of the biggest things is that when you're reading about the other, right, locate yourself in their oppression. Mm-hmm. Don't distance yourself from it and say, well, that's someone else. Actually, that's you. That is you. And part of my training is actually tell folks, can you be disinterested in and even to think of yourself as a good person? Because the only thing that you know for sure about yourself is that you're human. You don't know if you're good or bad. That is something that is an individual choice, right? To name yourself good or bad. But you actually don't know. But what you do know is that when you read a book about an other and they tell you about their struggle, you can locate yourself in that. As you were talking, I was like, okay, how many of these things have I done? How many of these things have I done? And when can I name that publicly with the hopes that someone will hold me accountable? Because the truth about bias, it's not just this interesting word we like talk about. It is actually the exploitation of people. It is the dehumanization of people's bodies. It is a demoralizing thing, right? Like it is actual a done thing. It's not abstract. It is not abstract, right? So we've got to move away from this idea that bias is somehow a concept that's really interesting and cool. No, it does things to people's bodies, physical things. When you talk about how 80% of people's, their work production goes down, it's because it's actually doing something to their, it's a visceral, actionable thing. So don't walk out of here thinking that, oh, that was a cool conversation. Walk out of there thinking about how are the things that I'm doing is actually dehumanizing an individual person. And the worst thing that you can do to someone is dehumanize them. It's the worst thing. And here's the key. You also dehumanize yourself. So that is the reason why you should be actively engaging and trying to unlearn bias because you're doing it to yourself too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much to our panelists for sharing their thoughts, perspectives, and being so candid and, and vulnerable and sharing their stories. So we're going to open it up to questions. I had a question for the panel. So you said that we're all works in progress. Companies, corporate cultures, they're all works in progress, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're a reflection of all of us. And so what advice do you have for people as we balance that tension between grace, as we become more conscious and, and that consciousness increases, the grace and holding people accountable for their behavior. I would start definitely with accountability. And what I've been obsessed with for almost the last decade is metrics. There are ways to calibrate metrics. So I've actually developed a tech tool called Loom the Culture Map that measures maps and improves organizational culture. We're using machine learning. We're quantifying unconscious bias at scale. But if you're not measuring, if you're not naming the specific impacts that you want to have on people's day-to-day lives and then intentionally crafting a culture around that and then holding people accountable for the new behaviors, then it stays in that soft, fluffy, abstract space. So until you measure it, it doesn't really get done. And you absolutely need to tie inclusive behaviors to people's compensation. Watch how serious they get about it when it affects their bonus, okay? So for me, and that's a great question, right? Because I keep talking about that it's a journey, it's a journey, it's not a one and done. And 
you have to constantly bring it to the surface, but you have to create that space where people don't think that if they're biased, they're bad. Mm -hmm. Bias and bad synonymous. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay. And I am vulnerable when I talk and I said, you know what? There are times where when I'm interviewing and for me, it might be, oh, I'm making this connection with that person, but I'm biased. Mm -hmm. That person may have gone to the same college I went to, right? So during that interview, I have to check myself to say, am I thinking about this candidate because this is the best candidate or is because I made that personal connection based on things that we had in common? So I constantly check that and have other people interviewing so that we have balance. So just understand that we're all biased and bias is not bad. How you respond to that, consistently do some things to check that. That's what's going to make the difference. I just want to say thank you first. Everything that you guys have had to say is so informative and great takeaways to bring back to where we all work. So the organization that I work in, there are a few of us that are trying to organically create like a diversity inclusion sort of program. And I love that you guys put humor into it. Every single one of you have. So how can we use humor to teach these things when it's such a serious topic and make people know that it is still serious, even though we're trying to teach them in a light form? Well, the comedian, so I was on the side, I do some diversity stand-up, and so I've learned some things. <laughs> I, I, I build myself as an awareness artist. I will use any available medium to like bring people together. One, there's a rule about punching up. You always punch up, so you make sure that you're not making light of anything, of an experience that is sort of less privileged than yours. But all of this work has to start with deep personal introspective work. So work on yourself and the way that you can inject humor and levity into it is to not take yourself terribly seriously and be willing to own your stuff in ways that are lighter. It is that personal extension of grace to yourself and to the people around you. But try to limit to personal space first because it's dangerous Mm -hmm. to make fun fun Mm -hmm. in diversity. It's a tightrope walk. So stay within the personal space. And when you, if you do that in the course of your creation, what you're doing is you're allowing people to fail up. You're creating space for people to not be perfect and that's required. So, yeah. Thank you. Hi, I love how you said like work is the most triggering place for people. And recently our team had a weight loss challenge. And they, of course, it was led by the skinniest person in the team. And... Uh, weighing literally triggers mental breakdown for me. <laughs> like, and then... What advice would you give to people to speak up without really revealing 10 years of trauma to your coworkers and how to speak up without not seeming like a team player and like overly sensitive? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. Like weight challenges have no place in the workplace, period. I mean, that needs to stop. I think at the end of that, right, in 10 years, we're going to be horrified that we did that. And at the end of the day, it's either for a social performance purpose or it's for insurance premium purposes, with neither of which are, in my opinion, humanitarian in nature. And so, right, for me, I think that it does start with one of the things that I saw that really blew my mind was a fellow sort of activist had made this poster that was like how to create a body positive space. And one of the things, one of the rules is like, we do not know who has an eating disorder past. And I think it's really, really important to, I think that's because it's an understood concept and people understand eating disorders as a mental illness, it really does help create perspective. And it can be a general conversation that doesn't reveal anything very private for you, but that is about largely advocating for the fact that like, we do not know who in this room has that experience. And we do know that a lot of women have it, right? And so there's complete data to back this concern. That's my point of advocacy. Yeah, I'm sorry you went through that. That's terrible. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, this is awesome. Thank you. Also, I'm from Richmond as well. So yeah. <laughs> we should probably go for coffee. Let's do it. <laughs> so I guess I have some tactical questions. The first one, you just talked about like measurements and how measuring what is generally what matters sometimes. So We're also struggling with how to take something very abstract and make it very concrete. Mm -hmm. So what are the measurements that you guys use and what might be some new So that's a much bigger question. So we're definitely going to go have coffee in (laughs) Richmond because it's huge. We're measuring 80 different interpersonal and organizational competencies. And when I say interpersonal competencies, other people call them soft skills and that's stupid. If people don't have those soft skills, all hell breaks loose. So we're calling them interpersonal competencies across 11 categories. It's massive, but for real, let's get contact information. I'm going to be signing books Right after this is over, so I have to escape, but come down to the table. Even if you don't buy a book, come to the table. Okay, Okay, awesome. And sorry, my second question. So again, tactical, but 
we have a lot of events that are discussion-based. And because of that, a lot of times it looks like people are looking at the people of color or minorities to try and speak up. And sometimes that's, I mean, if they volunteer, I think it's sort of good because they build empathy that way. But at the same time, it's a responsibility on them. And so how can we like foster events that don't sort of set that precedent and allow people- Name it explicitly. Make it known that no one is required to represent their entire demographic. This is an open discussion and make it safe for people because it's like being always the only black kid in school. And it was like, okay, third grade. And now we're going to like watch Roots and we're going to talk about slavery. I'm like literally hiding underneath the desk, making out with Stephen. (laughs) He was very cute. (laughs) There's a theme that runs through my life. Thank you for your lesson. Hi, thank you so much for having this discussion. And I've been working in the workplace for a few decades. And the way I see bias in action is by making people invisible, by not inviting them to meetings Mm -hmm. and not adding them to teams. Mm -hmm. So find that ally who's on the inside, have them invite you in, look at the distribution list, make sure you get invited. And that's all I have to share. Thank you. Wisdom from the crowd. I love it. Hi. So I have a question about actually how you keep from being angry all the time because you do the work. And I think so the angry black, I come across the angry lesbian all the time. So I'm going to come like I'm the angry feminist. I'm the angry lesbian, like in every room. Uh And my sunny personality protects me a lot of times, but the anger is real Real. and deep. And like, how do you do the work without it like beating you down and just feeling angry all the time? Y'all, I have too many answers. Yeah. And I try not to take on that burden. Right. And that's why I said, for me, it's about individual conversations. I had a mentor and I would share that with the mentor. Mentor didn't look nothing like me, but we had some commonalities when we chatted. And he said, who wouldn't you invite out for a drink on a weekend or a coffee meeting? And I said, lots of people in this organization. <laughs> and he said, select one and invite them out and just share. And that's exactly what I did. And I shared, right? And I shared. It wasn't, oh God. But when I sat down and really just chat, I'm an introvert by nature. And that's why I do individual coffee meetings, right? So I sat down and then those just meetings became more and more. And so for me, my guard then was just, I let my guard down because before meetings were different things. So now I had some commonalities. I had some common interests. And so it was different for me. And quite frankly, I would say that, you know what? I'm angry. How do we work through this? And this is what makes me angry. So So my my short answer is self-care. You've got to make a list of things that give you life and you've got to do those on a regular basis. You have to take care of yourself because it's grueling. I would also say I wouldn't apologize for your anger, right? So uh, Brittany Cooper wrote a book called Eloquent Rage, right? And what she talks about is that when you're in a down group, you get angry. When you're in the up group, you get fearful. Right. So it's important to understand that when those of us who are trying to hold on to the things that we think that we're losing, we start to get fearful. And then that fear turns into us trying to oppress someone else. So what you're responding to is to oppression. So don't apologize for that. Right. And I would read that book because Brenda Cooper offers some some really good stuff. Eloquent Rage. It's called Eloquent Rage. Beautiful. Thank you. Resources, resources. Thank you. Hi. First of all, thank you so much for the vulnerability, because that is exactly like you said, is the way we learn. So I have a comment, but also a question. Certainly, one of the things that I've seen that has been extremely effective recently at the company that I work for, which is Converse, is starting to have conversations. So doing training for two hours, where you're actually asking the people, when have you made an assumption of someone or when has someone made an assumption for you? So you can get that engagement Mm -hmm. and that conversation out. And you create a safe environment where everybody is sharing sort of what they're feeling in that function. So it cleans up. Mm-hmm. What effective ways have you seen training done? Because one part is us being allies, as all of you have been in terms of that work and creating that awareness. But what other things have you done that have been effective as you train your organization? Mm-hmm. I just have to say, you said that they're having conversations at Converse. Yes. <laughs> So one of the things that we're doing at Netflix is called a solidarity circles where you're actually bringing in folks who are from the same identity group from the same up group. Right. So what does it look like to bring together a group of white men and have them start to talk about what is the work that they need to actually do? Because oftentimes the ask is always made of the marginalized group. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would try to shift the paradigm and get a group of folks who are in up groups and say, 
what are the ways that you can use your privilege to undo how you even got that privilege in the first place, right? So how do straight white men undo the idea that they're the standard? They're not the standard. They just are white men, right? So I would focus on not giving more labor to those who are already doing the actual work. I would also get rid of all women's empowerment groups until there's a male empowerment group, right? Because again, the idea that there, that women need to be empowered connotes that women don't have power. That's actually not true, right? The other thing I would say is get rid of making the business case for anything. Because there is no business case for men to be empowered. It just is. It's axiomatic, right? Until everyone has to prove their worth, no one should have to prove their worth. Oh, that's wisdom right there. I will tell you that my two books on bias that are downstairs available for sale are made so that you can do like book clubs and have discussions about them. And we have guides for that. And then my third book that comes out in March is on microaggressions and everything is built around creating your own course structure and having conversations and furthering the conversation because we need to decentralize. It needs to be easy and accessible for people to do the work. Great. Thank you. So we have time for one more question. Oh man, who's burning? Who's burning, burning? I hope this is a good one. Wait, I do want to say thank you for that comment. I run our women's network at Global Atlantic and my number one goal is for us to no longer feel like we need a women's network. My question goes off the last question a bit. So unconscious bias videos, mandatory unconscious bias training, Mm -hmm. very hot in corporate America right now. The cynic might say, here's the lady in HR trying to root out all the bad white men. How do you bring people to the table in a good way? How do you open them up? So when you do get into those opportunities, they really are there and understanding why they're contributing and growing for it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just trying to get out of that situation and back to a comfortable place. So for me, the videos, that's supplements. Yeah. It's a supplement that helps. It is around the table, look me in the eye conversation. And at a previous company, that's exactly what we did. That's exactly what happened. I was around the room with senior execs, management committee, and we just had the conversation. And I told my story and the story about how I felt truly. And that was the beginning of dialogues and things that we will put in place to have those conversations over and over and over again. So when we think about videos, that's a quick solve. That's a defensive. It's the conversations and the real conversations that's going to make the difference. A diversity and inclusion conversation is not an actual inclusive conversation if we're not defining and creating space for everyone. So if white men don't understand their role in this conversation, and it's a really freaking important role. If you're not defining that and helping them understand the privilege, the responsibility and their place, then of course they're going to feel defensive. So they need to know that we need you. This inclusive environment includes all of us. So defining that is, is cool. There's, somebody has a whole consultancy around that, like white men as full diversity partners. Like that's a, that's a company. It's not very good. <laughs> I didn't say it. I just knew it existed. I, the best one is TMI Consulting. <laughs> We have measurable impacts, y'all. I think we are done. We are done. Thank you all so much. You just heard from J.P. Morgan Chase Regional Director Roxanne Cook, former NFL player and diversity and inclusion educator Wade Davis, and fat discrimination and body image activist Virgie Tovar. This session was moderated by renowned diversity innovator and best-selling author, Dr. Tiffany Jana. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the session helpful, and we invite you to tune in for more Best Breakouts from the Conferences for Women. Conferences for Women.